During last month's military conflict between Israel and Hamas, we also witnessed clashes within Israel itself between its people, Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews. Did you know that there once was a time during which, in comparison to Jews who lived in Christian Europe, the Jews who lived in Islamic kingdoms and empires lived in relative harmony among their Muslim neighbors? As Professor Petluck tells us in this episode, we need to remember what we forgot. We need to remember what was once possible. Hey there, news peelers. Today is June 4, 2021, and this is Adele with Appeal.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. As Israel's military and Hamas militants were exchanging missiles and rockets last month, violent clashes erupted within Israel itself. Israeli Arab mobs attack Israeli Jews, and Israeli Jewish mobs attack Israeli Arabs, causing deaths and serious injuries and the destruction of property. According to the Wall Street Journal, such escalation of communal violence has not occurred in Israel in decades. But the New York Times reports that Israeli leaders had in fact warned that a failure to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict might eventually lead to fighting within the state of Israel itself. Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's Prime Minister, labeled the violence as anarchy and held an emergency cabinet meeting to increase police powers and enforce curfews when necessary. An opposition leader, Mr. Yair Lapid, described these clashes as an existential threat. In a televised address, Mr. Netanyahu stated that nothing justifies the lynching of Arabs by Jews, and nothing justifies the lynching of Jews by Arabs. And he warned, we will not tolerate this. Despite the mob violence, or perhaps in spite of it, there were also many heartfelt stories of community and unity and neighborly love, such as Arabs protecting the home of an elderly Jewish neighbor, and Jewish neighbors flocking to a vandalized ice cream parlor owned by an Arab to offer their support. Here in America, we got to listen to many sides of the story. For example, on Clubhouse, a relatively new social media app, Jews and Arabs congregated in a clubhouse room titled 
meet Palestinians and Israelis. This room was often attended by hundreds, at times thousands, and it ran non-stop for many days. There, Israelis and Palestinians openly discussed their differences. But what they discussed more, way more, was their commonalities and their common history, the intertwining long history of Muslims and Jews. To better understand this history, we spoke with Mr. Michael Pitlick, an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and Religious Studies at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Professor Pitlick is the director of Judaic Studies and the director of Sysmazel Center for Judaic Studies and Community Engagement. He's also the director of the Study Abroad in Israel, an archaeological field school and culture tour. A link to Professor Pitlick's academic homepage is provided in the detailed caption of this podcast episode. So stay with me as Professor Pitlick and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Pitlick, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. During the recent conflict between Israel and Gaza, And there were, of course, a few incidents of street fighting within Israel between Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews. I went on a social media app called Clubhouse, and I listened to Palestinian and Israelis talk to each other freely and very quite respectfully. It was refreshing. I I love listening to them. They were saying something that was really interesting. They said, historically speaking, we're like cousins that we have more in common than many other religions. Professor Pitlick, in the context of history, what are they referring to? That Israel, uh, Jews and Muslims having things in common, being like cousins? What is that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you for having me, by the way. And uh, My yes, pleasure. True. Um, it's, uh, it's something that has been forgotten that we need to remember. Uh, that there has been long periods of time when Jews, Muslims lived together, uh, debated peacefully religious issues, worked together, worked towards uh, the good of a common society, such as in the Ottoman Empire and other places, and uh, they share a common ancestry as far as the religion goes and as far as uh, you know, how they emerged as people into the world in history. Um, what do you mean by common ancestor? Common... Well, at least religiously, this comes from uh, you know, the, the founder of Abraham and the stories associated with, with Abraham and also the fact that many of the same stories are found in Judaism and in Islam with a little different inflection culturally or something like this. So they do have these common stories. This is really an important part of uh, interfaith dialogue. I think that uh, people sometimes don't 
realize goes on. Uh, in the United States, for example, a few years ago, I was uh, one of um, several on a committee in the reform movement here in the Detroit area to speak to uh, the, the Muslim uh, community here. And we had uh, set up a number of different uh, meetings and discussions about uh, common topics like Abraham, like <clears throat> common stories. And these are where we found that uh, the most interest and the most uh, uh, conversation was about how we have taken similar stories and develop them slightly different, maybe have different meanings in some cases, but they are common, they are common stories. So we come from the same background that way. How did stories about Judaism or, or, or Jewish people make it into Muslim teachings? Well, um, Muhammad himself and the Quran itself says that uh, we should, uh, that Muslims should uh, take into consideration and respect the people of the book in general. So that there are, uh, th that's built into Islam as well, where we need to look at the stories that came before, uh, it, when before Islam was actually uh, a, a world religion. And, and respect those stories and respect those people that, can, that uh, were uh, important to those other traditions. I'm speaking now just about Judaism, but Christianity has a, has a role here too. But uh, such as such, for example, that Moses was a prophet and David is considered to be a prophet and you know Solomon is considered to be an important person. Wait, these are in the Quran? It is it's in the Quran indirectly that these are to the, these these figures and Judaism itself as the people of the book need to be respected, protected. Um, of course, Islam has a new dispensation. It is trying to make a new world religion. So while it incorporates some of this old, older material, um, you know, Muhammad, of course, is the final prophet, according to Islam. And of course, there's mm -hmm. a religious tradition that is accepted. But the core foundation of this is we are speaking to the same family is more or less interesting so when you say islam is forming a new religion you're referring back to i don't know the exact um years the seventh century 630s 640s whatever that era is sure this is muslim prophet muhammad is it interacting with jewish scholars and religious people and learning about judaism well from where he came, he emerged out of the Arabian Peninsula, and mm. the rise of Islam as a world religion is coupled with political ambition. So yes. it, there's no hiding the fact that it is also a uh, they're conquering they're conquering territory as they go. So right from the start, Islam is not only religion, but it's closely tied to the political sphere as well. That's yeah. just built into Islam. So uh, this this expansion out of Arabia follows uh, well follows the, the experience Muhammad had with the people living in the peninsula. So before. Islam, there were local tribes, for example, polytheists, as we were told, and there were also Jews living in uh, decent numbers in Mecca, Medina, and in the peninsula itself. So yes, there were uh, quite a bit of, there was quite a bit of uh, back and forth about what was going on in Judaism. And of course, the stories were probably pretty well known. Uh, you have to look at back at this as a situation that if you're trying to create a new religion, if that's the, the intent of Muhammad at this time, if you're trying to create a new religion, how do you influence people to think about this new religion? 
And one of the ways that uh, he had to take into consideration was the Jewish tradition, which had been long established by that point, even in the Arabian Peninsula. So yes, uh, the earliest sort of uh, rituals associated for what we know anyway uh, with Islam is like the direction of prayer, for example, was uh, originally Mecca and Jerusalem. So one could orient Interesting. towards Jerusalem. And this uh, took time to sort of change. There, you, can, you can read into this that um, some early Muslim or Islamic traditions are very much uh, appreciative of the precedent set by Judaism. So we have the idea of looking towards Jerusalem. Why is that the case? Well, after Muhammad makes his, uh, his flight to Medina, there are other stories. I'm sorry, places. his flight? Well, his, his migration, it's called. Uh, he's leaving. Is this a mental? No, no, no. Uh, we'll get to that one in a minute. But he sure. was born in Mecca. Okay. And then there is a revelation to Muhammad from Allah around about 610 or so in Mecca. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he recognizes the older religions. The re they're recognized as important prophets. Jesus, David, as I said, David, Solomon, Moses. And, and Muhammad is, 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 is advocating monotheism, so I could see that relation and attraction to Judaism, which is sure. another monotheistic and long-established religion. I see. Okay. Okay. So, uh, as you said, a monotheistic faith with Muhammad as the final prophet. So, there are some significant differences theologically with uh, Judaism and Islam and Christianity as the sort of the, the other one, other religion here. But well, let's keep mm -hmm. on track to, to, to this. Of course, of course. When, when Muhammad uh, has his uh, mystical journey, he goes from Mecca to Jerusalem, is known as the famously in, in uh, Islam as the night flight. And when he goes from Mecca to Jerusalem, you can read it as a mystical journey, or you can read it as a physical journey. Either way, uh, it's to the farthest, farthest mosque that is taken to be Jerusalem. So early on, it's cemented in this, uh, the sweeping idea of taking Judaism and the history and tying it to Jerusalem. That is a very important holy spot for, for Islam. Of course, it's the most holy spot for, for Judaism. And where does he go in this journey, physical or mystical or both? <laughs> he stopped at the bedrock on Mount Zion. This is the location of the first and second temples within, Judea, within Jewish tradition. It's also the site wow. where effective rulers ruled david solomon they're seen as ideal kings even within within islam so this is an important step it's tying the political with the religious and tying the history together now it can go forward to something new there's a new idea where does muhammad go after he uh, reaches this this uh, important spot for judaism the, the bedrock mount zion in jerusalem he goes on a journey through the seven heavens and, and there along the way he meets all of the previous dispensations, like the prophets, he meets Moses, David, Jesus is there, and others. Um, and he goes up and he, you know, goes through the seven heavens. And you can read this all the way back to how the Greeks had an idea of the seven heavens and how uh, Aristotle and other Greek uh, philosophers influenced Islam. It's a Hellenized religion as well. So we have this, uh, we have these, these wonderful traditions. Now, uh, that doesn't mean the Arabian Peninsula is left behind. Muhammad faced opposition. There's no doubt about that. So when he fled Mecca, he went to Medina in 622. And when he moved in that direction to, for, you know, to escape the persecution in Mecca, 
um, he, he's tried to found a the theocratic state there uh, as well. So it's year one of the Muslim calendar. So it, it's not easy. Wow, so it's that significant that that migration from Medina, uh, from Mecca to Medina actually becomes starts the Muslim calendar. OK, I see yes. the significance. Go ahead, please. All right, so um, originally there were Jewish communities, significant ones there. They were well established. They had trade relations with the local Arab tribes. They were, uh, you know, this is pre-Islam. This is pre-being a Muslim at this point. Yeah. So Muhammad uh, tried to settle some of these disputes among the many. Different I'm sorry. Tribes. When you say Professor, but like when you say pre-Islam, you mean pre-Medina becoming being a Muslim right. town? Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. You know, we now, have to. Ask Muhammad himself was a Muslim by then. It's hard to know exactly what he would have called himself. Was he trying okay. to? Was he a Muslim at that point? It's it's the same question we have within Judaism: Who's the first Jew? I mean, okay. there's no such thing as Judaism or the Torah in the time of Abraham, but he's considered the first Jew. It's it's just how you kind of slice it a little bit. Okay. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Uh, there was heavy fighting there, and he uh, he and his his group, his men, eventually won, and it was with a goal to stamp out the tribal wars and establish a new social order. So, this is a religious uh effort and also a political one so mecca and medina are both important cities for muhammad's journey and the events of his life so jerusalem also stands as the third most important but at, at the time the direction of prayer as i said the qibla or the direction of prayer was prayer was originally towards mecca before his flight to medina but it was also towards jerusalem so there is a there's a time within um, within uh, the, the sort of the rituals, how the rituals were developed, where, you know, how are they developed? And it takes time. Is it we can trace this in Judaism too, to an extent, how the new religion will make new statements about its its customs and its rituals. In other words, Jerusalem becomes not the final place of the direction of prayer. It's Mecca eventually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the Sabbath, when do you have a when do you have a Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath idea within Islam is different than say Christianity or, or uh, Judaism. It's uh, Friday. Saturday, yeah, Saturday is yeah. taken already. <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> is yeah. So they eventually wor worked it into be Friday, but the, even here it's different because it's it's a day uh intoned with uh importance extra prayers for example longer prayers and a political statement in the sermons on friday uh, as it is to this day uh tied together but it's not a full day of rest so it's not yeah. the same. the ideas are not quite the same so there's a, there's a an eventual divergence from jewish practices to make islam islam and yeah that, a religion on its own you 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 uh, you mentioned several times uh how islam um recognizes uh, uh, previous prophets, prophets of Moses, Jesus, David, Solomon. Is Moses mentioned in the Quran? Yes, he is. I'm not an expert on the Quran. I, you know, I, I pick and choose where, where I need yeah. to uh, there. But uh, yes, he is mentioned. It's, it's a very important prophet. Interesting. So it, Christianity had to do the same sort of thing with Judaism, because okay. without when Christianity comes, Yes, it has radically new ideas, but it also has this split from Judaism. And the real split takes several centuries to occur to make it a new religion. The idea of the person of Jesus, who is Jesus, yeah, that is yeah. much different than it's the big divergence uh, with Judaism. But this this is how uh, very interesting how when the Dome of the Rock is built in Jerusalem for the uh, under the Umayyads, for example, 
It's mm -hmm. built about 691 AD. Um, th this is a, a new statement. This is a new statement about not only power, but religious uh, understanding. We accept, uh, I think I'm putting words in their mouth, we accept the past, the effective rulers of David and Solomon, but also here's a new dispensation. What's really interesting is the inscriptions that are on the Dome of the Rock, because they are, they are really speaking to the Christian community, which was the majority of the people in Jerusalem at that time. Interesting. Uh, why don't we take a short break and talk about what happened after Muhammad, and you already uh, alluded to it. We'll be back in a moment. So, Professor Pitlick, you mentioned uh, that there's the growth of Christianity. In this case, Muslims, they don't grow eventually. Essentially, they just explode out of the Arabian Peninsula. And within a very short period, they conquer vast territories from, from India through the Middle East and North Africa and uh, in Spain to the borders of France. As, as you were teaching me, narrating this history of early Islam and Jews, it occurred to me that Jewish people lived in these lands and, and, and you know, their, their previous governments were Christian or Zoroastrian, what have you. So what happens when the governments are now Muslim? What happens to the Jewish people in these lands? Well, there are um, there's no one heir after Muhammad. The, the, the secession after him is is problematic. We end up with different factions and uh, this becomes its own issue within uh, uh, Muslim history or Islamic Sh Shiism and, 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 and yeah. Yeah. So the, Shiism, the, what, what, what ends up happening is that we have different groups, different uh, ruling bodies. And in the area of Palestine at the time, uh, it's conquered in 638 by these uh, tribes. And eventually the Umayyad dynasty will control this area. So here they- and You mentioned the Dome of the Rock in a, in a previous segment. Yeah. All right. So what do they inherit? Well, they inherit from the- well, inherit, conquer, they, they take uh, the keys of the city of Jerusalem from the Byzantines. And uh, that's the Christian uh, group. Eastern, the Byzantine being Eastern Roman Empire. Correct. And okay. so here they have a number of issues. Jerusalem is an important city. The, the night flight story is known at this point, but it's really solidified a little bit later about the actual uh, mystical journey, but it's still there. It takes a while for it to, to filter down into an actual story and be written down. But the Umayyads uh, are controlling Palestine, part of Syria, uh, maybe a little bit part of uh, Jordan as well as we know it today. And eventually they set up a new political capital. So there's already competition there for Mecca and Medina. Jerusalem becomes the new capital. And what's important here is that these older dispensation stories are there. The Dome of the Rock is built over uh, the place of the former Jewish temples, the two Jewish temples that uh, existed in history. And also the stories are starting to be incorporated. So again, um, what happens to Jews at this point? Wait, well, is there any any destruction or desecration of Jewish holy sites? Uh, at this point, the the as far as we know, the Temple Mount is had been left sort of in ruins. There's mm -hmm. some stories and some writings about Christian leaders who wanted to keep 
that Temple Mount sort of as a reminder of the failed religion of Judaism, whereas the Holy Sepulchre, which is not very far away, is the new place for the yeah. Holy yeah. Christianity. So uh, it, it's it's a little unclear what was there, but it's cleaned off. The dome, the Temple Mount is cleaned off, and the dome is is erected there. I see. Um, so. Uh, what had happened before that, though, is that in many cases, and sometimes a little less and a little more so, it depends on historical times, Jews were barred from Jerusalem. Well, that's reversed. And Jews can come back. There's no such thing as a tradition at this point of the Western Wall. It's more of like where the temple used to stand. So Jews are allowed to come back and and and, and visit these, these places and pray. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. I- um, I don't mean to come off here in the in the rest of the, t- the time we're together is to say that everything was perfect. It's not perfect. No, no. But there are some really uh, progressive uh, things that occur, and that is that the uh, the Muslim authorities uh, realize they inherit a really mixed bag of people with different traditions, different histories, different ideas, and so there is a uh, an attempt to sort sort of codify protections. And this can be looked at in, in a few examples, the dimmi status. The dimmi means a protected class, uh, non-Muslim. So Christians, let's say, and Jews for the most part are provided some protections. Uh, they have to pay a, a, a head tax, a jizya tax, and they pay that. And then other things are um, um, are good and good here in some cases. They don't have to, for example, uh, go into the army. They are restricted in some other ways. They can't build synagogues or churches higher than, you know, than a mosque or something like this. Uh, so there are some restrictions, but there are also some protections. So if we're talking about seventh and eighth and ninth century Middle East, this is pretty advanced an idea. Uh, so you're, you're, you're in comparison to the past, this is pretty advanced. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, this is a huge empire, as you said. It extends all the way from North Africa to India, for example. Uh, there are a number of other groups that come and go within uh, within Muslim history. Uh, for example, Baghdad is founded as a, as a new city in 762 under the Abbasids. And Jews are already living there. And they are flourishing there. Now, this is not a town at this point anyway that becomes Christian at all. So Jews and Muslims got on quite well together. And this is an example for the Near East versus Christian Europe, where Jews had a much different experience, a much worse experience overall. When we talk about Baghdad, unless we go west, let's say towards Spain, mm-hmm. were there different kingdoms? Were there different treatments in the Muslim world? Uh, did the Muslim world splinter at some point? There is some there is some splintering and there are different empires. There are Mamluks, there are Abbasids, there are Seljuks, there are all kinds of different uh, groups. And we're, but we're talking about a long period of time. As yeah. So is it is it uniform across? Uh, not always. But in general, just to make the statement again, Jews fare much better. And this is the thing we need to remember. Jews fare much better under Muslim rule than they ever did under Christian rule. And I think that there's some things for, there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, they lived close by. They participated in the same sorts of uh, economic activities. Uh, They traded stories about their common religious roots, for example. Uh, As far as the scholarship goes in Baghdad, it's a flourishing center of Jewish learning. 
right alongside the same sort of uh, center of Islamic of Muslim learning. So what are they doing? They're speaking same languages. Many of the earliest texts that we have in Judaism about theology are in Arabic because they're speaking to each other. And that uh, there's a, a bit of a tagline. It doesn't always mean this, but when you're speaking about mysticism and you're speaking about writing and having conferences about theological ideas, it's more or less has to be sort of in a period, uh, a period of peace and trust that you can have these conversations without being fearful. For example, in, in Europe where this goes on, there are dis disputations, they're called. Yeah. If, if you were to lose these, they were kicked out of the country, for example. The Talmud, for example, in Europe, in many places, Paris and other places, was burned, uh, put on trial and burned as, as a text. This doesn't occur in Muslim lands. So let me see if I understand this correctly. In Christendom, they had these disputations. If the Jewish scholars lost that debate, they would be kicked out of country. There would be some punishment. Is Not only that, sometimes if they won the debate, they were kicked out. The most famous dispu disputation was in 1263. We have a very famous Jewish scholar, Rabbi uh, Nachmanides, uh, in 1263, he's put on uh, put on this disputation. It was organized by the leadership of of uh, the, the province at the time, the kingdom of the time. And against him is a scholar who was Jewish, converted to Christianity, and he is going to debate the Jewish uh, scholar. And the, some of the topics include the nature of Jesus, had the Messiah already come, you know, these, these big ideas within theology at mm -hmm, the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a trial, it's a show trial. And uh, Nachmanides is uh, incredible. He presents the case without being uh, offensive in any way. And the king declares that he won the uh, debate and he's paid the prize money, whatever it was. And yet at the same time, he still has to go. So where, where does he go? Uh, 1263, he picks up. Now, remember, 1263, around this time, we're still in the pretty heated phases of the Crusades. Yes, yes. He, go? he goes to Jerusalem. And there he founds a synagogue. He writes letters back to Europe, and he tells people, hey, you know, you might need to come here because things don't look so great. Oh. Oh, wow. Way back in 1263, right, it's coming, yeah. come to the lands of Muslims, because relatively speaking, it's better here. And I think now, that's that even further than that, uh, people like go on pilgrimages. This is a pillar within Islam. This is, you know, something that people have done for centuries and centuries and uh, millennia, actually. And they go on pilgrimages. It's really fascinating. I'm to sorry, me. who actually you said people, people oh, like oh, to go on pilgrimages. Okay. okay. Muslims, Jews, Christians. Okay. Um, so uh, what's interesting is the writings from uh, the, we have some from the fourth century. We have a, a number through the Middle Ages at the height of the Crusades, Jews and Christians, of course, too. But Jews are picking up and leaving Europe and going to Baghdad and they're going to Cairo and they're going to Palestine, of course. And they're looking at all these places. And what's interesting is you don't hear about really any big blockages. They partner with Muslim locals or, uh, to help them move from place to place. Um, the worst that I've seen, and I know there are other records, I haven't read all of them, 
But uh, it's interesting because some Jewish uh, pilgrims will say, well, you got to be careful when you get to the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, because if you don't pay the right sort of bribe, you're not going to see the good stuff. You know, you got to watch the guide. <laughs> you got to watch the guides today, too. <laughs> you see how fascinating it is to most of us who are not familiar with this history, uh, modern, more modern 20th century and now. Western Europe and North America are places of refuge, refuge for minorities, including Jews. And of course, there's Israel. Um, two two um, small questions. Uh, I say small because in the context of everything you've discussed, they they matter probably a little less. You, you said they lived close to each other. Were there ghettos in the Muslim world the way they developed later in later centuries in did, did Jews have quarters or did they just sort of intermingle like they do here in America? Everyone just lives interdispersed amongst each other. Um, there is also uh, not not the same. The ghetto idea, the actual ghetto mm -hmm, comes from mm -hmm. France, 15, 15, 15, 16, somewhere in there. France, okay. Venice, sorry. Oh, Venice, Venice, I apologize. Venice, okay. So uh, that is meant to wall Jews in while uh -huh. at the same time they're providing some economic uh, uh, benefits to the Venetian society. There, there, there is that, but they're sort of walled in to keep them separate. Now, there are examples where, here's a difference though. For example, in 1516, um, the uh, Ottomans take control of Palestine. And just before that, in 1492, the massive expulsion of Jews from Spain. But this is just the biggest of a number of them in the 1200s and the 1100s, the 1300s. And this is after Ferdinand and Isabel win, okay, against Muslims in Granada. Expulsions, numerous expulsions that occurred all over Europe. Uh, Jews are kicked out. And then in 1492, with the you know, stroke of a pen, the Jews are expelled from Spain. Um, had been there for 600 years and got along just great with the Islamic culture that preceded it in Spain, preceded the Reconquista in Spain, mm -hmm. and a beautiful uh, society developed. It's called Andalusia, and it's beautiful Spanish culture. Jewish in the Iberian Peninsula in yeah, Spain. this whole thing for you know, a good 600 years or so. Jews are expelled in 1492. Where do they go? They go to Venice. They go to Amsterdam because it's a freer city, and a number of them, uh, a good portion of them, go to where? The Ottoman Empire. And where did they go? Why did they go? We have uh, a number of uh, stories, and I, I have no reason to doubt these are these are historical. Uh, Bayezid II sent out his navy. His Ottoman it was a sultan of the Ottomans. Yes. Okay. Under the command of his admiral. And he sent, them, he sent them to Spain in 1492 in order to evacuate Jews safely to Ottoman lands. He sent out proclamations throughout the empire that the refugees should be welcomed. And he granted these refugees permission to settle in the Ottoman Empire and become Ottoman citizens. And he ridiculed the Spanish leaders who kicked out the Jews, Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile. He said this, Quote, you venture to call Ferdinand a wise ruler, he said to his courtiers. He who has impoverished his own country has enriched mine. There's another wow. example of this that said European loss is our gain. Now, what's the gain here? 
Jews thrived. They knew languages. They knew how to uh, in, uh, play intermediaries between European trade and Near Eastern trade, which was thriving at the time. They knew how to speak the languages of, of Muslims and, uh, and uh, European uh, people as well. One case study, Safed in the north of modern day Israel, then Palestine. It's a Safed, Safed, does that have to do with Sephardic or am I just conflating those names? Uh, yeah, it's a separate thing. Uh, okay, go Hebrew, ahead. Hebrew, it's Sfat, but uh -huh. we say Safed. Uh, beautiful mystical city. It's the city of the Kabbalah, which had flourished in Europe. It flourishes even more in, um, in Palestine. And there Jews come because there's already a, an ex, uh, a long history of Jews and their scholars and the sages of the Talmud living in Safed and in this area for centuries. And people are coming here to be close to that activity, as well as the intellectual activity that is flourishing there. You don't have flourishing intellectual activity and prosperity without peace. So here's another example of how things are different. When the Jews settle here in this town, I'm really only speaking of this town right now, mm -hmm. um, they come with a specific sort of talent, which is to help the process of fulling dye, uh, wool and dyeing wool that they learned in Europe, brought to the Ottoman Empire. And so they are, and the pr uh, proliferation of water in this particular place allows for this processing of this wool, which then goes on to Syria and Damascus and all these other places, uh, Syria and Baghdad and so on. And there are protections put for Jews. A wall is erected around them with a different intention, not to keep them in, but to protect the industry from people, from the outsides. Oh, I see. Taxes are lowered and eliminated in some cases for Jews to come here. And what are they allowed to do? This is technically after the monumental earthquake of the uh, Spanish uh, expulsion, Jewish legal authority, legal religious authority in the land of Israel as it was known or in Palestine had broken down completely because of centuries of, of neglect and Jews hardly living there. There were Jews, but there were no rabbis there at that point. They had to reinvent Judaism. This is one of those pivot points in Judah Jewish history, where if it weren't for the conditions here, the protections here, Judaism might, might have disappeared. This is a this is a really important part of the whole story. Oh, and the wow. Ottomans the Ottomans created this. The Ottomans were also uh, progressive in a sense. They created pacts, or uh, they called capitulations, with European countries that protected the rights of the people in both places. For example, the Ottomans go into a trade agreement with Venice. The Ottomans insisted as part of that trade agreement that the people within Venice, such as Jews, and the people within on the, on the Ottoman side would be uh, protected rights for the first time. Professor Pet, like I want to make sure that I understand this correctly. When you say Ottomans, we're talking about early to mid dynasty Ottomans. We're talking the first 300s, right? Yeah. The, 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 the phrase, uh, I hope I'm saying it correctly, the sick man of Europe that was yeah, attributed yeah. to Ottomans, that comes much later. And that, yeah. that, that sullies the relationship between Ottomans and their Jewish uh, subjects, yeah. right? Right. So we want to, that is a good point. And, and so when the Ottoman Empire is, uh, takes over uh, Istanbul or Constantinople in 1453, uh, we go until the latter part of the 16th century when things are pretty good. 
and the, the umpires run efficiently. After that, things change somewhat, as you said. Um, we'll be back after a short break and talk more about the long history of Muslims and Jews. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Petlick, I've read in many different publications, including your own, about this crossover or collaboration in the realm of Sufism between Muslims and the counterpart of that in Judaism. It's so fascinating. I'd love to learn a little bit about that. Uh, This is a particular interest of mine, and um, I want to Make sure we also. I also give uh, due honor to all three religions because when it comes to mystical ideas, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. they are speaking similar language. And so I want to make sure we include, if we don't even talk about it that much, include the fact that Christianity in the 12th and 13th century was flourishing with these mystical ideas. We have beautiful, incredible writings. Islamic scholars, Ibn Arabi, Rumi, and others, of course, there are, are wonderful scholars about this. And Jews proliferate with this idea of, of Kabbalah and mysticism. A Kabbalah comes officially a bit later in time, but already in the Hebrew Bible, we have examples of mysticism. And it, it, it goes and goes and goes centuries after century. So is Kabbalah the, the name uh, that's similar to Sufism when it comes to... Judaism, am I saying that correctly? Yes, I think we should just use the generic term mystical trends within, mystical. Each, uh, uh, within each religion. Um, and they speak common language. They speak of symbols. And a lot of these symbols we could trace back as early as the Greeks. Islamic culture brought a lot of these things back to life and brought them into the discussion, like Islamic, uh, the the cosmology and the idea of seven heavens populates into Christianity and to a different extent into Judaism. So we have a number of these mystical trends and important, significant writings and places. Like, for example, for Judaism, Kabbalah, the received tradition of Kabbalah begins early and it starts in southern France and in Spain. Europe, even European writers are, are writing in Arabic, like Maimonides, the important scholar, he eventually goes to Cairo, and there he becomes the uh, physician to the vizier, and he is uh, talking about Sufism, and he gives it high, high marks. Now, Maimonides is known as a legal scholar, a rationalist, but even here he says Sufism is like Judaism in a sense. So they're speaking these great uh, conversations that transcend, you know, the normal sort of problems and differences. They speak to commonalities. So there's this really rich cross-religious intellectual development. And we see this in a number of writings. And we see this also in the fact that uh, some Sufis and some Kabbalistic Jews or mystical Jews were 
we're sitting together and discussing these things. It's a fantastic place that we need to remember, even with Christians, you, of course with Christians, that, that there are these common ideas that populate our religions. One of the, one of the horrible things about that, that we, we see in common society today or in popular society today writ large is the fact that you know, organized religion is, is, is uh, really trashed and it's really mm-hmm. given a bad name. But I think that what we have not done well is, is to teach some of these things that, are, that show us the commonalities and also the richness, the spiritual richness that's there. People they also are like, give a message of hope that we've got along in the past and in one of those again. One of those messages of hope comes from not just religious materials. It comes from a particular place, and it comes from Cairo, where Jews had a flourishing life among Muslims in Cairo. And I'm talking about the the synagogue there, the Ben Ezra synagogue in Cairo, old Fustat, as it was called, and the Geniza that that has been found in the late 1800s. What is a Geniza? Geniza is a repository, a place for proper disposal of Jewish texts, usually where the name of God is written, the holy name of God is written in Hebrew, or say, for example, a prayer book uh, is ripped, page comes out, it goes to a Geniza, which is a place for proper burial, really. Sometimes it's in a synagogue, it's in the floor, sometimes or in a chest in the floor, something like this. In other words, that there, uh, uh, there is a, a long tradition about the sacred nature of the text. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these are properly buried. This goes back all the way, we think, to Masada in the first century. We have some of these examples. So this is quite old. Wow. And so Cairo is one so of you these- don't just throw it out. There's a ritual for this. Out, I get- throw it in the recycling bin. You, you, you really properly- Got it. Um, and so this Geniza in this uh, old synagogue, which has been even destroyed a few times itself over, over the years and rebuilt- but from around the ninth century all the way up to the 18th century, there is 18 feet by, I think it's by six by three. It's a big like column of space. And here, this community put not only those kinds of texts with religious connotations, but also marriage contracts. And they put school child sort of practice texts of writing his, uh, his or her ABCs. And they put those there, poetry, uh, checks, uh, like physical checks for, uh, for, certain- for how long were these things deposited in there? There's almost n- about 900 years of this material. This oh my the- gosh, that's history. This is the richest history that we have about daily life with Jews and Muslims. It's, it's nicknamed the second Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's got more detail because it's talking about women who own businesses who are taking other wait women own businesses back then in muslim land and these and are jo- jewish jewish women yes. but they're interacting with others so there's if there's a lawsuit with a jew and someone else it goes to court they tell us about it women uh, are widowed and then they have take over a business they inherit property they they dispense of that property to their heirs this is all written down so it gives us a really unique view of, of life in this particular, in the Middle East. Now, they, is it perfect again? No, it's not perfect. But what kind of jobs could Jews do? From the Cairo Guniza, we learned that there are something like 450 unique kinds of jobs Jews were involved in, in trade, in uh, selling trinkets and whatever, the, all, law, whatever it happened to be, physicians. You, you compare that to Europe, 
And in some places it's like that and sometimes in places, but in, a, in most other cases, uh, European jewelry was con continuously restricted on what they could do. So we have- these... of, um, When we talk about jobs, did Jews ever become under Islam ascend to the higher echelons of the government? The, oh, how did, yeah. I mean, how, how high are we talking about? Is that- uh, we have a look at Maimonides himself, physician to the visitor. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, we have uh, a number of different uh, professional positions, such as, uh, you know, official government uh, accountants and uh, uh, sort of assistants to the rulers and military leaders. Yes, it, it does. Military. It's yeah. changed so much. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the Geniza gives us this beautiful, rich tapestry of life. Um, Solomon Schechter uh, received the, uh, a little bits of this information from some Scottish travelers, two sisters who traveled in the Near East and were very interested themselves and self-taught about ancient languages. So they recognized there was something unique about a piece they bought in the Cairo marketplace. And they took it back to London and they uh, got a they hold of it. They took it back to London. You're telling me this yeah. is 18 feet deep. This is well, like a grain silo almost, like a small... <laughs> How did like we're, wow? Some of these texts filtered out over the years and ended up on the what we would consider to be the you know the tourist trade. They ended up in marketplaces. Probably the sellers didn't know what it was, but these two women were keen to understand what these what these texts might be. So they bought the text, little pieces, little trinkets, and they took mm -hmm. it back. Vector said, "This is a rare text, a very early text of uh, Ecclesiasticus." And he said, "Where did you find these ladies?" And he eventually goes back. And what's also interesting is he eventually takes back truck, uh, trunk load, loads yeah. of this material and takes it back to London. So we have hundreds of thousands of pieces of, of material that talk about just life, beautiful poetry and, uh, uh, you know, uh, you could, uh, you could, you poetry, could, you could do your PhD on those papers. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, uh, this has opened up our eyes about the fact that there was this rich, flourishing tradition among these two groups, you know, and there were restrictions put in put on Jews, even in Muslim lands, of course. Of course. But it's really interesting through the Cairo Geniza, they find ways to get around it. And oftentimes they weren't enforced. So it's really uh, you have to look. It, it depends where and when about this 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 love affair, because it doesn't last forever. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah, of course. Uh, Professor Petlick, um, let's take a break. Stay with me and Professor Petlick as we get into the perspective. <music> Professor Petlick, we, we covered all this history. And as I told you during the break, it really opened my eyes to the past. So, so I guess the question I have for our perspective is, are there any lessons for us now in 2021 and going forward? I, I, uh, for sure. I think we need to remember what we forgot. That's the message. Remember I, what we forgot. Okay. I want to remember, I want us to remember what was possible. Now we, we have not talked about the modern political issues that plague the Near East with the establishment of the state of Israel and all of the faux pas that were created during that whole process and before okay. that. Process. And the fact that we have, and the, and the understanding that we have people suffering, 
and, and I'm talking about in the, the Palestinian territories and other places. This is not really what we're talking about today. It is completely complicated and something else I, we need, others can talk about. Whoever exactly, wants, exactly. Wants speci- you know, specific. But what we, we should remember is I, I want to bring a, a short passage that is not about necessarily about Muslim Jewish relations, but it is from the Jewish tradition. And it's about where we are today. And so far as we have forgotten some of the wonderful spiritual messages about within each of these traditions without being overtly religious, we mm-hmm. have forgotten what we once knew. So I want to read this story. I'll translate. Where, where, where is this from? What is this from the Torah or? No, no, this is from a, uh, a story, uh, okay. sort of a story. Okay. Now it's set in um, 18th century, let's say. Okay. Now, I will read this and I'll translate the names. So it starts like this. When the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov is master of the good name. He's sort of the founder of modern Hasidism within Judaism, a mystical sort mm-hmm. of Okay, when he's the great, the great uh, Baal Shem Tov. When he was challenged by a seemingly insurmountable task, he would go to a certain place in the forest, light a fire and meditate in prayer. And what he had set out to perform would become accomplished. A generation later, when the great sage of Meserich encountered a similar challenge, he would journey to the same place in the forest and he would say, we can no longer light the fire, but we can recite the same prayers. And what he wanted to be done was accomplished. In the next generation, Moses of the town of Sasov went to that very spot in the forest and said, we can no longer know how to light the fire. We no longer know the correct meditations on the prayers, but we still know the place in the forest to which it belongs, and that must be enough. Finally, in the following generation, Rabbi Israel of the town of Risen was called upon to perform the task. He sat in his home and he said, we cannot light the fire, nor can we recite the prayers. We don't even know the location of the place. All we can do is retell the tale of how it was done. And that must be enough for us. Hmm. So what I want to bring by that story is that we have this rich tradition and we need to remember it. And by remembering it and by bringing it forward, maybe there's a way to do some repair. What can we talk about that transcends some of these problems without at the same time ignoring those problems? So when I was asked, I was just in Sedona uh, hiking for a week, just last week. And of course, we was there three weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah. With with the idea, uh, with the, uh, you know, the the Gaza situation and the bombing and all this stuff going on. Mm -hmm. um, I got a call from Oakland University and they said, well, we have this uh, opportunity on WXYZ TV in Detroit. They want to interview uh, someone about this Palestinian Israeli situation. Can you do an interview? And I'm like, I'm hiking in the middle of the, the desert here. So as it turns out, I got on it and, and they wanted to know what, what can we do? And that's the problem. What do we do? Because today they said, they said, what is the religious reasons why these two are fighting? And today I can't say they're fighting over religious reasons. I just don't see it that way. 
you know, that's the sense I got when I was listening to Palestinians and Israelis talk on the social media app I told you about, Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not about Jews or Muslims. And this is not my opinion. I'm sharing with you what I heard. This yeah. is about current uh, conflicts that will hopefully one day be resolved. Well, look at what the, uh, the Abraham Accord says. Now, when you look at the text, it's quite simple. The Abraham Accord is an attempt to sort of set the stage for how we begin to talk to each other. And it starts like this. We, the undersigned, recognize the importance of maintaining and strengthening peace in the Middle East and around the world based on mutual understanding and coexistence, as well as a respect for human dignity and freedom, including religious freedom. We encourage efforts to promote interfaith and intercultural dialogue to advance a culture of peace among the three Abrahamic religions and all humanity, and so on and so on. And in sense here, what it's indicating is, let's remember what we forgot. Exactly. Well... Uh, let's hope for a peaceful future in the Middle East and some some sort of resolution to all these conflicts that we have. And let's remember what we forgot. That's really the lesson, the mantra from this uh, episode. Professor Pedlek, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel Out News, of course, anytime. And to our listeners. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, We're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.